I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Talia Schlanger. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, longing for home, the father of a man still believed to be held captive by Hamas tells us what he wants the Israeli government to do to bring his son and the other hostages home. And forced retreat. A British doctor who was forced to leave Al-Aqsa Hospital in central Gaza says he can't stop thinking about the patients and colleagues he left behind. Life and death, Edmonton's city council debates declaring a homelessness and housing emergency, but a volunteer who's helping people on the city streets says there is no more time for debate. Taking on water, the federal government recently tabled a new bill designed to set drinking water standards in First Nations across the country, but some of those First Nations say the promise of best efforts isn't all that promising. Looking for a fairy tale ending decades after BC's fast ferry debacle, one Vancouver consultant says they deserve a new life, so he posted them for sale on Facebook Marketplace. And can you dig it? After an extreme snow dump, a Buffalo resident responds to a call from the Bills for stadium shovelers, despite being a fan of the New England Patriots. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that understands no pain, no gain. It's been over 100 days since Hamas militants stormed into Israel, killing 1,200 and taking some 240 people hostage. Since then, more than 100 of those hostages have been released. But for the families left waiting, news of their loved ones is not always promising. Today, Hamas released a video purporting to show the dead bodies of two Israeli hostages, In the video, which could not be verified by CBC, another hostage suggests the two men were killed in IDF attacks. This comes after Israelis gathered again in Tel Aviv this weekend, calling for the release of all the hostages. Jonathan Dekelchen is the father of Sagi Dekelchen, one of the roughly 130 hostages still believed to be in Gaza. We reached him in Karmegat, Israel. Jonathan since we last spoke in November, I know you did receive some news about Sagi, your son. What have you learned? Well, um, about six weeks ago, uh, 100 uh, Israeli hostages were released by Hamas. And of those 100 hostages, about 40 of them were from my kibbutz, kibbutz near Oz, uh, women and children. And a number of them saw Sagi alive, um, about six weeks ago. Uh, Since then, we've had no more news, nor have any other hostage families received any news. So given that information, but also, you know, the kind of news that comes out today in the video released by Hamas, Mm -hmm. 
you know, when we last spoke, you you talked about, you know, trying to be optimistic, but keeping a level head, tempering that optimism, given the realities and the lack of information at the time. How are you feeling now at this stage? Um, Extreme concern. Um, in, In the best of cases, that was six weeks ago. We know from the released hostages that the conditions for those hostages who remain behind are are horrific in terms of nutrition, in terms of medicine, sanitation, uh, no air. Um, We pretty much know for a fact that all of the remaining 133, I think, hostages are all either sick or wounded. And their lives are in danger uh, every moment they stay, not only from uh, uh, Hamas's maltreatment of the hostages and neglect, but also because there's a war raging around them. And um, as we've seen, our own soldiers, our own uh, military forces can mistakenly put the lives of the hostages in jeopardy by by their very military action. Israel's defense minister today, as I'm sure you've seen, says the military operation in southern Gaza is nearing its end, but the keeping up military pressure is key in their view to getting Hamas to agree to release any more hostages. And at the same time, you've been traveling back and forth to the U.S. because you are Israeli-Americans, you and your son. You, You met with Joe Biden as well. So how are you feeling about the official efforts both in Israel, but also in the U.S., to get these hostages home? Well, I'll start with the the one that's a little easier, and that's the U.S. administration. It's been extraordinary for me um, to bear witness to the wall-to-wall, top-down support for Israel in general and for the hostage release, all of the hostages uh, released from the Biden administration and from Congress. As far as the Israeli government's approach to all of this, it really hasn't changed very much uh, since the very first days of the war. Um, The only news that we've gotten are news of, uh, just in our kibbutz alone, uh, 10 individuals who were assumed to be hostages who were actually declared dead by forensic examination. We don't have their bodies. They're in Hamas custody. But uh, that's really the only movement. So the hostage families form in general, and I think most of the Israeli public, has been pressuring our government to do more, to be more creative uh, in order to get the hostages out alive. And so we are concerned and, you know, don't sleep at night. It's it's a horrific situation. What specifically do you think the Israeli government should be doing differently? Well, we've been saying really from the start that the Israeli government, while it states that it has two, perhaps three war aims, among them return of the hostages, it, it must be priority number one. All things must flow through uh, the the efforts to free the hostages by whatever means necessary. It's not my place to dictate to the Israeli government exactly what steps they should take uh, to get the hostages out. In any case, you know there there are two kinds of courage, and they don't always mix. One is you know military courage to order soldiers out into the field and to be a soldier out in the field, and then there's diplomatic and political courage, and both are difficult. And so um, I can say for myself, I looking towards the Israeli government and its leaders and demanding that they show political and diplomatic courage, which in some ways in the current situation is no less important than the courage to send young men and and not so young men, our reservists, into battle. 
One of the other things you mentioned when we when we spoke in November was that Sagi's wife, your daughter-in-law, was expecting she was due to give birth. How is she doing? Happily, uh, we have a, a small little ray of light in our world right now. Um, Sagi's wife gave birth a little over a month ago to a healthy uh, young girl. Mm-hmm. Um, her name is Shachar, which in Hebrew means dawn. And indeed, it's a little ray of light amid really the the, the darkness that surrounds not just our family, um, but Israel as a whole uh, because of the hostage situation and Gaza, given the suffering of, of millions of people, uh, all of whom are suffering uh, because of uh, Hamas's leadership. Is your new granddaughter and that advocacy work you, you talked about, Jonathan, is that what is keeping you going? I think anyone who has uh, a loved one in in Hamas captivity, I mean, this is a savage organization, if anyone uh, had any doubts before October 7. And so I would imagine that every one of us has some image that, that we retain in order to you know, get up in the morning and, and keep working at this. Mine is that... Um, one day, today, tomorrow, uh, Sagi, I hope, I pray on his own two feet, will walk into some room or walk down a hallway, and his two older girls, age two and six, will leap into his arms, and he will embrace his beautiful wife and his newborn baby. And that's what I work towards every day. And I won't rest, and I'm sure other hostage families won't rest until we make those dreams for our loved ones come true. These are not just numbers. These are not just faces. These are our sons, grandfathers, husbands, brothers, um, and women as well. They're still just from my kibbutz alone. Two young women, one mother and one single woman, who are still being held in uh, Hamas captivity, and two very young boys. Jonathan, I hope those dreams you talked about come true. Thank you. Thank you very much for keeping a spotlight on this. Jonathan Dekelchen is the father of Sagi Dekelchen, one of the roughly 130 hostages still believed to be in Gaza. We reached him in Kalmegat, Israel. And coming up later in the program, we'll hear from a British doctor who was forced to flee Al-Aqsa Hospital in central Gaza and about the patients and colleagues he left behind. It is extremely cold in Western Canada tonight. Over the past few days, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Alberta have experienced temperatures as cold as minus 55 degrees Celsius with the wind chill. And over the weekend, Edmonton recorded its coldest day in 55 years. But as temperatures began to plummet last week, Edmonton police tore down the last of eight encampments. The city said they had to be removed for safety. But the people who were living there said that makes it that much harder for them to stay warm. Today, in response to that, Edmonton Mayor Amarjit Sohi proposed a housing and homelessness emergency. Judith Gale is the leader of Bear Clan Beaver Hills House, an Indigenous-led volunteer group that helps people living on the streets of Edmonton. We reached her earlier today at City Hall as council was debating. Judith, what would this declaration actually change? I'm hoping that it will uh, enhance the lives of our brothers and sisters on the street. Um, 
that have are are um, displaced uh, from their communities um, that have uh, no uh, nobody to speak for them. So the declaration would be. It sounds from what I'm sounds like what I'm hearing from you is uh, the declaration would be an acknowledgement, but in terms of concrete help for those folks who need help right now, what could it translate into? Currently, it is a life and death situation. We see uh, the um, weather plummeting to minus 43 in the nighttime. And uh, in my opinion, that's, a, that's death. If you're stuck out on the streets, that is death. So it's very important that we come to a positive resolution today uh, for our brothers and sisters. But um, so far, as I've seen in uh, in the meeting today, that is the factor that is being left out, is our brothers and sisters. They're too interested in uh, talking about task forces, uh, talking about... Uh, how much money will be allocated, you know, and we're forgetting about the human cost, and that is a life. And that's our brothers and sisters that deserve to live. Creator has them here for a reason, and it's not up to council and mayor to uh, snuff them out and to forget about them in this juncture. I know it's been an emotional time inside the meeting as well. Absolutely. Uh, so many great people of Edmonton has, have come out in this cold weather uh, to uh, be a voice for our brothers and sisters. Because honestly, the voice is not reflected in the mayor or the council. They're too, in, too concerned about the legalities. The mayor proposed the emergency, though. That Does that give you hope that, that someone is listening? It, uh, the only reason, in my opinion, that they called this a uh, so-called emergency uh, is because um, the world has uh, uh, stood up and recognized that uh, there are real human beings left on the street. You mentioned the temperatures, how low they are, how cold it is. You were, you were out there last night. Can you just give our listeners a sense of what it was like out there? What were people doing to try to, to stay warm and safe and how you were helping? Well, I'll tell you what. I was just told by community members mm-hmm. uh, that uh, in the four days that it took our fine city to uh, call this so-called emergency meeting, we have had deaths on the street. We have had uh, people emerge going to emergency with uh, horrendous frostbite. They could quite easily uh, uh, shelter our brothers and sisters in a good way instead of leaving them on the street. I know some people um, have said that they have preferred the encampments because they don't feel safe in shelters. What are some things that should be done now to help them? I'd like to see each and every one put up in a hotel room. That's what we do in our organization Mm -hmm. is we go around and we uh, pick up people from the street and we put them in a hotel. Our great city of Edmonton can quite easily open up a big center 
and um, bring everybody in out of the cold right now. And that's the solution I was hoping for today. But unfortunately, the way the powers that be are talking, uh, they're talking long-term strategy. And right now, we don't need that long-term strategy. We need immediate, immediate housing for our brothers and sisters, even if it is just during this cold vortex. It's going to save lives. You're trying to help people, but how are you doing? I'm honestly very ha- uh, having a tough time, and it looks like now there's some development because we have police, we have security, we have peace officers running into uh, the city hall as oh. I speak to you right now. Well, w- so without putting yourself are very in, upset. Yeah, without putting yourself in harm. Are you able to to pop your head in and see what's going on? Absolutely, absolutely. <sighs> this is very disconcerting. This is what we see on the streets all the time. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, oh, okay. This is this is what happened. Uh, one of our brothers who works with a uh, mutual aid organization mm-hmm. called Nekum. Uh, for change, Mm -hmm. and he is very upset because his leader of the organization died uh, this year, and unfortunately, they could, he could not take this any longer, and he had an outburst, and he was met by nine, nine um, um, uh, police and uh, peace officers and uh, security Mm -hmm. guards. I know it's a difficult time. And emo- it's very, there's so much writing on what is happening. Let me ask you, Judith, what would you need uh-huh. to, what would you want to hear from the mayor or the councillors or the province? What could they tell you to bring down the tension and the emotions and the hurt? They could tell us today that they will house each and every brother in on the street tonight right today, right now. We know where everybody is on the street. They're not hiding. They're out there in plain view. We can quite easily pick them up and house them in a good way. You know, I'm from the Northwest Territories, and this summer we had horrendous uh, uh, wildfires. So we, um, the great city of Edmonton, erected within 24 hours a fire evacuee center to accommodate 20,000 people. Why on earth aren't we doing that for our brothers and sisters? Judith, thank you very much for your time. We're going to stay on the story, but I want you to take care, okay? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Creator has built me this strong for a reason. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I have big shoulders. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Judith Gale is the leader of Bear Clan Beaver Hills House. We reached her in Edmonton as Edmonton City Council was debating a motion to declare a housing and homelessness emergency in the city. Follow our colleagues at CBC Edmonton for more developments on that story tonight. Extreme temperatures and snowfall have hit the U.S. too. Tens of millions of people have been put under winter weather alerts in recent days. And today's Republican caucuses in Iowa have been called the coldest 
ever. It's amid these conditions that Eric Shields put his loyalties aside for his city. He is a New England Patriots fan, but he's lived his whole life in Buffalo. And when his city's NFL team needed help yesterday, he answered by shoveling snow. We reached Eric Shields in Buffalo earlier today. Eric, you're inside in your house right now. What does it look like outside your window? Uh, outside, it looks like the the North Pole, I guess you could say. <laughs> <laughs> we got about a, maybe three to four feet outside. Just in my driveway, there's a huge snow bank. Kind of can't get out. You're staying warm, though. And oh, inside. absolutely. Okay, good. Yep. When did you get word, though, over the weekend that the Bills needed help out at Imark Stadium? So it was, uh, I want to say it was maybe mid-afternoon, uh, Saturday morning. They, um, the janitorial company contracted to Highmark Stadium, sent down an ad via social media. And I've been there before when I was 16, I did it. So I wanted to jump to the occasion. This is not even the first time you've done this? No, no absolutely <laughs> not. I do it as, as much as I can. <laughs> this is a huge stadium, big corporation, I, lucrative team. Why do they need your help? Yeah, I I ask myself the same question. I mean, I I don't even think they know that I'm a Patriots fan, but um, <laughs> well, they should. You know, they, they, it shouldn't matter. You did a lot of work for them. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think they could take as much help as they can get, and uh, I mean, they pay pretty good. It was twenty dollars an hour, so okay. free food also. So I mean, we'll take it. Okay, good. What was the food? Uh so we had uh, chicken fingers, which are Stadium relatively fair. expensive. Yeah, when, yeah, well, they're relatively expensive at the game. So I mean, <laughs> it's a perk if you get them for free. Absolutely, yeah, free food, twenty dollars an hour. There was a travel ban in place. Snow in in Buffalo. Did you defy that to get to the stadium? I did. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I I spoke on it before. I mean, it. Buffalonians, you know, we, for the most part, we know how to drive. We got some pretty good driving skills. So if we got to get to where we got to go, we, there's not much that'll stop us. <laughs> yeah, you. I hear, I hear your baby there. You have your hands full there too. Yeah, yeah, that's my little man. <laughs> how old? Uh, he's seven. Patriots fan already, yeah. Yeah, well, me and the wife are kind of button heads on that. Oh. She, she's a Bills fan. <laughs> what a household. Well, maybe just oh, let yeah. him figure it out for himself. That's it. Yep. So you drive carefully, I hope, to get to the stadium on the weekend. What did it look like when you got there? So uh, on the way there, it wasn't really too bad. But mm -hmm. once we get there into the parking lot, I mean, I was there for maybe 10 minutes. I got out of the car and it was just a whiteout condition. You couldn't see five feet in front of you. Did you regret making that decision to go or were you happy to be there? Absolutely not. I mean, I woke up in the morning, I chugged down a Monster Energy drink, and I was ready for the day. <laughs> Is that what was keeping you warm? Because uh, my producer, Katie, showed me a photo. You're just wearing, uh, like, a polar fleece. Yep, yep. No, I just threw down some Monster Energy drinks. They had hot chocolate in the in the cafeteria there. So <laughs> once I got in, threw a couple of those down and went to work. <laughs> How long were you out there? Uh, so I got there at 7 in the morning. I think we hit the field around 7.30, 7.45, and I... I think I was just pulling out about 4.30. How did you leave things when you left in the in the afternoon? No matter the amount of shoveling that we did, I mean, we would shovel by sections. And by the time we got to the next section, we would look over at the, shovel, the section that we had just shoveled, and it was already covered. So, I mean, all of our work was for naught, but <laughs> <laughs> it's seems, better than yeah. letting it sit there and pile up. <laughs> yeah, so you didn't really make a dent in things. The game, as we know, did not go on. Absolutely, yeah. So it got postponed to today, and I don't think there's much that'll stop him from playing today. Yeah. Yeah, even the governor has weighed in saying, you know, that the game the, the game will happen and the conditions will be much more conducive to a good game. You filmed Absolutely. a video in between shoveling all that snow for not, as you said, and that's it's pretty been pretty popular online. Did you let on at any point that you're a Patriots fan? 
Oh yeah, I mean, I, I in the picture that I um you know I posted online, I got my Patriots mask on. So I, I was gonna wear a jersey, but I didn't want to ruin it. So right. <laughs> you thought just just a little just a little hint. Did they did you yeah, get a exactly. ribbing for that? Oh yeah, I mean, I like I said, I've lived in Buffalo my whole life, and I get hasting all the time. It's all it's all for fun though, you know. I love my city regardless of what team yeah. I I like, you know. Yeah, today they're not the Buffalo is is they're playing the Steelers, not the Patriots, yeah. as you know. So. So how are you feeling? You're 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 rooting for the the Buffalo? For the oh Bills? yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Bills are definitely, I guess you could say, my secondary team. I mean, I'm not a diehard fan by any means, but if my Pats don't make it, I, I guess I can root for the Bills. <laughs> I guess, yeah. How did you end up becoming a, a Patriots fan? My older brother, he was a Patriots fan when I was growing up. So once I started getting into football, kind of just followed in his footsteps, and then one of my favorite players from another team got traded to that team. So just all fell in stone. Now I got. Patriot tattoos and <laughs> it's crazy. You've, you've committed fully. So yeah. yeah, you're wearing them literally on your heart on your sleeve. So Hell even yeah. though they're your second team, does it hurt to cheer for the Bills? I mean, not really. I mean, it's my home team. So I mean, it feels good to be part of some, I don't want to say I'm fully part of the Bills Mafia, but <laughs> it feels good to see people in my city enjoying, you know, what they're doing. And yeah. I've said it since Josh Allen came in the league. They're the, they're the best team in the AFC East right now. Coming from a Patriots fan, that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Thank you. That was Buffalo's Eric Shields speaking to us ahead of the Bills game today. Videos on social media from the stadium this afternoon showed fans trudging through snow to get to their seats. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced the Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. After 100 days in the conflict, the United Nations says there are no words for the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. The United Nations and our partners cannot effectively deliver humanitarian aid while Gaza is under such heavy, widespread and unrelenting bombardment. This endangers the lives of those who receive aid and those who deliver it. The vast majority of our Palestinian staff in Gaza have been forced to flee their homes. Since October 7th, 152 UN staff members have been killed in Gaza the largest single loss of life in the history of our organization. A heart-wrenching figure and a source of deep sorrow. Still, aid workers under enormous pressure and with no safety guarantees are doing their best to deliver inside Gaza. We continue to call for rapid, safe, unhindered, expanded and sustained humanitarian access into and across Gaza. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres speaking earlier today. James Smith recently returned home from Gaza. He's an ER doctor who worked at Al-Aqsa Hospital in central Gaza before the group Medical Aid for Palestinians was forced to leave. We reached him in London, England, and a warning, he does describe the injuries of a child in a war zone. Dr. Smith, you received a message this morning from a colleague, a Palestinian doctor who is still at Al-Aqsa Hospital. What did they tell you? So the doctor said to me, yes, 
still open in reference to the hospital, but without team, one or two doctors in department. I'm good, but I'm exhausted. I'm working daily from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. o'clock. And this is, yeah, this is the state of things now. Do you know how many patients they're able to see? Did, Did they give you a sense of that? Uh, I didn't get a sense of how many patients they're able to see now, but certainly when we were at the hospital, we were seeing uh, several hundred patients in a shift. And and the the nights were often the busiest and the worst, particularly in terms of um, traumatic injuries. We'd often show up. I remember one particular day that, that the bombardment had been very, very bad overnight. And one of the nurses... Uh, leaving the night shift, we asked them, you know, how was the night? And and they said they'd seen over 500 patients overnight, which is just a phenomenal number of of people in a, in a in a 12-hour shift. And that's one memory from from many. I'm sure you have difficult mm-hmm. ones. Is there a patient that stays with you? I recall a particularly horrific mass casualty incident. We'd received perhaps 10 or 15 patients in a, in, a, in a very, very short space of time. One child, couldn't have been more than a year old, had uh, a traumatic amputation to both the right arm and the right leg. Um, and the left hand and left foot had been very, very badly damaged, perhaps would require subsequent amputation. Um, A child was still alive, um, but really just an incredibly horrific injury to have have had inflicted upon them. Uh, And at the same time, there were many other adults and children in the resuscitation room with us with varying degrees of, of, of traumatic injuries. Other patients with traumatic amputations, uh, patients with open abdominal wounds, open chest wounds, um, really just very, very horrific and, and horrifying scenes. And you don't know what's happened to her? No, no. Many of the patients that were admitted to the hospital who who survived initial sort of stabilization you know survived through initial stabilization in the resuscitation room they would go on um, to receive specialist care so they'd either go to the general surgeons or the orthopedic surgeons Um, but my big fear now um, is that the the Al-Aqsa hospital at which we were working was already struggling in terms of functionality Uh, a couple of days ago they announced that they had run out of electricity and we ourselves, we as the MAP IRC team, we were unable to access the hospital again after Friday the 5th of January due to an escalation in, in mm-hmm. Israeli military activity and Israeli aerial bombardments in the immediate vicinity of the hospital. Um, you had planned to go patients, back. That's right. Um, absolutely, we, we had hoped to go back um, and it was deemed too unsafe for us to do so. Many of those patients in the hospital, there were hundreds of patients in the hospital and, and many more relatives, family members, um, and even more internally displaced people in the immediate uh, vicinity of the hospital. Many of those people have now fled trying to seek safety elsewhere. And we heard a, a bit more about those challenges and dangers from the UN Secretary General just a moment ago before we started our, our conversation. Just for you personally, when you were there and working in the hospital, what was it like to work under those circumstances and the bombardments nearby? So I've I've worked in humanitarian and, and, and conflict 
contexts uh, at other stages in my career. And while I hesitate to, to make comparisons between different conflicts mm-hmm. and different crisis situations, this was by far the most unsafe, the most grotesquely violent situation that I have ever worked in. Um, where we were staying, we would hear certainly overnight constant aerial bombardment, constant artillery fire, often exchange of gunfire. Uh, the, the areas closer to the hospital uh, would experience the same, but much, much uh, greater intensity. On the last day that we were in Alaksa Hospital, uh, there were reports circulating that a bullet had been fired into the into one of the rooms in the intensive care unit. Um, we were hearing this from our colleagues in the hospital and, and photographs um, of that room were, were later circulated on social media. Um, so really just incredibly unsafe conditions uh, for, for anyone to be working in and, and, and so unsafe that, as I've mentioned, I'm incredibly concerned about the well-being of the healthcare workers that have stayed and, and the patients and, and, and people living in that area and that neighborhood. Israel, the Israeli government, the IDF, they say Israel has no choice but to do this. It must defend itself against Hamas. It must eradicate Hamas and that Hamas is to blame not only for the October 7th attacks but for what is unfolding now because of how they are embedded, Israel says, in in the population and in, in the hospitals. The IDF denies targeting hospitals, this hospital in particular, uh, and, and civilians. What do you want people listening around the world, Dr. To know 100 days on? What I want to state very clearly, Neil, is that what I witnessed in my time in Gaza and working at Al Aqsa Hospital was violence that is of a scale almost unimaginable. Sadly, it's very much imaginable to Palestinians who have, who have experienced this violence not only over the course of the last 100 days but over many years and many decades. And, and, and what I saw was not an act of self-defense. We know that the, Isma- the Israeli military, sorry, has one of the most advanced, uh, has some of the most advanced military technology uh, that, that, that the world has seen. Uh, and this suggestion that they are not targeting healthcare workers really does not stand up to to any great scrutiny. What, 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 what I'm hearing here is a real lack of willingness to, uh, to account for the violence that they have inflicted on, on the Palestinian people uh, across the entirety of the Gaza Strip. Dr. Smith, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. James Smith is an ER doctor who recently returned from Gaza. We reached him in London. The boats were meant to be great, built in B.C. for B.C., ferries that would significantly cut travel times. But what actually happened was not so great. Costs soared, excitement soured. And when the fast cats were finally completed in the late 1990s, 
they didn't work as promised. Because while they were fast, that too became a problem when their enormous wakes began bashing the shoreline. In the end, they were only in the water briefly, and then they were gone. But now they've turned up again on Facebook Marketplace. Rob Arthur is an international trade consultant and the man behind the posting. He's selling the ferries on behalf of an Egyptian company, initially tasked with stripping the boats for scrap. We reached him in North Vancouver. Rob, why not just let these boats die? Well, you know, the engineer has got uh, in Egypt, he told me, he said in his ethics of being an engineer, he likes to dismantle things apart that, that have come to their end of the life. And when he reached out to me, he said he was shocked to hear that two of these boats had only ran for nine months and one had never ran at all. That's why he reached out to me back in Canada. He knew I was an international yeah. trade consultant and I lived in North Vancouver, not far from where these things were built. So that's him. He'd, li- he'd like to see if he can salvage these things before he has to rip them apart. It feels like it would be a waste. Totally. Is that part of your pitch to potential buyers? Um, I think the buyers realize that there's other opportunities. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and, you know, to be honest with you, the information that people are sending me mm-hmm. for ideas that they're thinking to do with them, very few of them have got anything to do with ferries themselves. It's a multi-purpose, maybe moving some equipment or floating camps and restaurants and that kind of thing. Very few are even got anything to do with the ferry itself. And what will they cost? The, the Egyptian government is looking for $15 million U.S. each. It's pretty steep. It is expensive, yeah. So we're talking $20 million Canadian dollars. And, you know, somebody has to be a sophisticated entrepreneur to negotiate with the Egyptians to get them out of their Navy yard and bring them back to Canada, whether they... And who's to say it's going to come to Canada? Right. I mean, the interest globally has been incredible. Given that price tag, though... Why Facebook Marketplace? Well, you know what? Um, because I was given such a short timeline. Like, the guy approached me and said, I've, I've got one to two weeks to do something with it. So, you know, you could put it out wherever you want, but you need to get a bigger bang for your buck to, to see who's <laughs> interested. I mean, you know, so put it on Facebook Marketplace, see what happens. I had it on LinkedIn. You know, I, I just needed a quick reaction to go back to the consultant and tell him whether he's wasting his time or not, or he might as well just dismantle him. And you got that reaction? I got a reaction that was so over the top, I had I had no idea. I didn't expect that. How many bids so far, or offers? Well, I have no formal proposals yet, but I have tons of really, really cool ideas. In addition to, to what you uh, and the folks in Egypt have told you, that, that they haven't lived the full life they need to, to live, that they're still mm-hmm. healthy in their view. They are still 25 years old, though, and they never worked as they were supposed to, which is why, you know, they didn't stay in B.C. So that's got to be a bit of a downside for any potential buyer now. They're still old. Mm-hmm. You know, from, and I'm, no, I'm by no means an engineer. So, I, you know, from what I'm told, aluminum lasts a lot longer than steel so these are all aluminum boats lightweight the propulsion system apparently that they put in 23 years ago uh they have stuff that's because we're not the only ones that had beach wash or erosion because of these powerful motors um that happens all around california and everywhere so apparently i the the engineer in egypt said oh there's systems that came out 10 years ago that that have dealt with all this beach erosion and all this weight that comes off these boats so He said there there is technology out there, but that's something that someone's going to have to look at no matter whether they go back to B.C. or some other jurisdiction. How did they end up in Egypt? Good question. I have no idea. 
I was actually surprised when the when this consultant reached out to me from Egypt, thinking, "What what are they doing there?" And then I realized ten years ago somebody did the thing and said, "Oh, they happened to be in the Middle East." So I had no idea they were in Egypt until this consultant reached out to me. So you don't know how much they paid for them or how they how they got nope. them. What were they being used for there? Uh, nothing. Apparently, they tried them in the Red Sea and said that because they're more of a flat bottom boat, they need more of a V haul because they, when they were trying to through these flat bottom boats there. With ferries, apparently, it was bouncing around and uh, all over the place, and it wasn't what they wanted to do, damaging vehicles. So that's why they said where they came from in British Columbia is a perfect environment for them mm-hmm. because they got Vancouver as the breakwater to slow down these big waves. Yeah, they didn't work so well there, as you know. And I, I grew up no. in, in Vancouver. I've taken the ferry many times across to the island. I'm not sure that I ever got on one of these, but you know that they're a bit of a sore spot, I guess we could say. This could be triggering to some oh. folks. It brings back bad memories, no? What are people saying? Well, you know what? There's a lot of people that said, oh, man, uh, well, we don't want to see these back. But you know what? Nobody is trying to sell them to the ferry companies. You know, it, most of it's entrepreneurs with these mm-hmm. great ideas. Do you remember riding on one of them? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've ridden on one. Yeah, and I, I, I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was excellent. The pictures did bring back memories for me, just the aesthetically, and they are a sort of a, at least at this point, a time capsule, a moment in time in BC. There's there's signs advertising Nanaimo <laughs> bars for a buck fifty five. Uh, Come on, yeah, isn't that something? Eh? Yeah, I loved it. The one that said Caesar salad on it. Yeah, that, so it was it was very nostalgic to go back and, and to look at that. You know, uh, and that's the engineer. He said he took those pictures two weeks ago. And I know you said you've got a lot of ideas that people are are floating, so to speak, at this point. Any that you want to share with us or, or that you think are the best? Uh, nice. You know what? There was a tech uh, place that somebody wanted to do in Taiwan, so it would be like a tech center in a harbor in, in Taiwan. Uh, one of the coolest things from one of your areas is one of your colleges approached me in Ontario and said they would like to put it on land and make it a land-based campus, uh, whether it's to do with marine or whatever. I have no idea, but I thought... That's a novel idea. He said it just would create such a great, interesting work envi- uh, learning environment. Others, again, are floating hotels, floating work camps, floating restaurants, a consortium of chefs. Oh, and then there was also, I got a, an inquiry from uh, Patagonia, from Chile and Argentina, and another one from Hawaii. We'll see if they, if any of them uh, come through. Do you yeah. have a personal favorite? Do you, do you in your uh, heart of hearts, you know think it's going to happen? I I think that tech one for Taiwan is very cool. And I think that that could have been something that easily could have worked in Toronto or Vancouver. I think that it's a very unique idea. We'll see, Rob. Thank you. Yep. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. Rob Arthur is an international trade consultant. He was in North Vancouver. In November, they fled. This week, they're watching and waiting and wondering if they'll ever be able to return. The people of the Icelandic fishing village of Grindavik were evacuated after a nearby volcanic eruption destroyed homes and left giant cracks in the earth. On Sunday, a new eruption sent molten rock into the town, setting houses on fire. Suna Jonina Sigrodotr is a resident of Grindavik. Since the eruption in November, she has been living with her husband and three children at her grandmother's summer house near Selfus, Iceland. We reached her there. <laughs> 
So now what do you know about the condition your home is in right now? So far, uh, from the outside, it seems everything is still in place. Uh, I live up the street from the lava stream, so the lava wasn't likely to reach my home. It stopped right at the end of your street, very close. Yes. If it would have kept erupting for a while longer, it might have reached us. At least it would have reached my in-laws in only a few uh, minutes or hours. We are seeing, as you are, I'm sure, some reports of new damage to homes in your community. So when you see those images, how do you deal with that? It's heartbreaking, of course. Everything feels unsafe. It really doesn't matter the most to me anymore if my house seems fine or not. The whole community is broken. The whole ground beneath us is broken. So we don't feel safe at home anymore. And there's still questions about what's still happening underground and what could happen. Um, from mm-hmm. from what experts are telling you, from what you understand at this point, what is happening mm-hmm. under the, the surface in Grindavik right now? Uh, they tell us that fissures may open at any time, anywhere in the town. We used to think it was m- mainly concentrated to one area through mm-hmm. town and then a secondary fissure on the other side. But now it seems it's, it's literally everywhere. Anywhere you walk, you might fall through a new crack or fissure that you didn't know was there. We know someone someone has fallen through and the search was recently called off. At this point, mm-hmm. you say you don't feel safe now. Can you imagine a time where you will be able to go back? I think after the terrible accident last Wednesday, my hope of ever returning was taken away. This is exactly what we feared the most. Uh, We used to be able to send our kids out on their own and they would always Mm -hmm. feel safe. And now we don't feel safe at all. We don't feel safe anywhere. You posted on, on social media about your home and the work you put into it. You said, quote, this is not just real estate. This is our hearts and souls. Can you tell us about your home and what it means to you? Um, My husband and I used to rent, and we had to move all the time for 12 years. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't the best experience. So we decided to try our best to create the home that we could own. And since price of real estate is really high, we were not able to save up and buy while renting, so we decided to put in a lot of work and build our own home. And together with my in-laws, we built homes for six families in our extended family. So my in-laws and their five children all built these homes together, and they are all on the street that was affected by the lava stream mm-hmm. yesterday. And, uh, yeah, it has cost us a lot of hard work and a lot of fights Mm. to get to where we are now, where our homes are pretty much completed. It's been five years uh, since we started building. Iceland's government has said it is looking at how to best help people like you, the people of Grindavik. What's your assessment of what help they are offering right now? Right now... The authorities are offering some short-term support. They are helping pay the price of rent and so on, but we need to start seeing some long-term solutions. Like I said, I, I don't think I will be able to ever move back, so I need the government to step in 
and figure out a way uh, to compensate us because our insurance doesn't cover this level of uncertainty. You have to have seen physical damage to your own home to be able to claim insurance. So we need the government to step in and bail us out so we are not stuck in this limbo waiting for perhaps something being safe again. What do you think your next move will be? It's my hope that we are able to get some of our things from our home because most of our things are still in the house and that we um, will have some capital to buy a new home and start over somewhere else. But at this point, you can't go home and you can't start over. No. We have a short-term plan to stay in this uh, summer house. And my kids have started a new school in the area. We are waiting until the end of the school year without relocating. Mm -hmm. And then we hope we will be able to form a long-term plan. How old are they? Uh, They are 4, 11, and 14. How are they feeling about all this? It's clearly hard for you and your husband, and I can hear it in your voice, but how are they handling it? I think they mostly feel numb. There's like a disconnect in their minds from what they see and hear on the media and the reality that they experience. So, yeah, it doesn't seem to sink in. But, of course, they are emotional and and so on. What do you tell them? We try to tell them the truth. That's the advice we've been given from uh, psychologists to to tell them the truth, but to do it in a way that doesn't shock them terribly. Of course, it shocks them. It would shock anybody at any age. If you do have to start over somewhere else, as you are expecting, Mm -hmm. what will you miss most about Grindavik, apart from your home, of course, and the stories there? I will miss the community. It's a wonderful, close-knit community. I've been working in a community center, and uh, we get visitors every day, mostly the older people from town, and I will miss seeing them and hearing their stories. I think it's so tragic that after they've spent their whole lives in this beautiful town, building something up, that they are now having to look at it being broken. So you're in a choir, too, as well. I'm in a choir with uh, moms my own age or women my own age. Most of us are moms. We've been each other's support system and great friends, so I will miss them terribly as well. Sunna, thank you for your time. Take care. Thank you. Sunna Yonina Sigurosdotter is a resident of Grindavik. We reached her in Selfus, Iceland. If you've never seen Camille Passaro's 19th century painting, Rue Saint-Honoré in the Afternoon, Effect of Rain, allow me to describe it. It's an impressionistic landscape of Paris's rain-swept city streets, both dreary and hauntingly beautiful. That painting once belonged to Lily Kassirer, a Jewish woman who escaped Nazi Germany in 1939, whereupon it was stolen by the Nazis. And today, it's hanging in the Thyssen-Bornemitsa Museum in Madrid. 
For years, the family has been fighting to have it returned, but Spain has argued that the museum has legal rights to the painting because it was owned in good faith for over three years before the family questioned its ownership. Last week, a U.S. appeals court upheld that law, ruling that the painting may stay in the Spanish Museum. David Barrett is one of the lawyers for the Casirer family. We reached him in New York City. David, what what does the Casirer family say happened all of those years ago? How did Lily end up having to hand over this painting? Uh, Well, this was, as you know, during the the Nazi era uh, in Germany. In order to leave, you needed an exit visa. The Nazis made it very clear to Lily that she was only going to get an exit visa if they were able to, quote-unquote, purchase the painting. And so ultimately, that is what happened. An art dealer who was working with the Nazis purported to buy the painting for a pittance, and even that money was was paid into a blocked account that Lily could never access. She did, she and her husband did manage to get out of Germany. The painting was taken by the Nazis. We're not quite sure what happened to it during World War II, but it ultimately ended up in uh, Beverly Hills, California in 1951 in an art gallery. And then uh, in 1993 is when it ends up in the hands of this particular museum. That's in question Well, that's now. correct. There's, there's probably one intermediate step, which is in 19... 19- uh, 75, Baron Thyssen Bornemitza, who was the scion of a, a German family that, among other things, was, was very close to Hitler and supported Hitler, purchased the painting until 1993 when he entered into a transaction with the government of Spain. This painting and, and dozens of others in the Baron's collection were acquired by Spain, but Spain promised to and did uh, turn a palace in Madrid into a museum that is now called the Thyssen Bornemitsa Collection in the, in the name of the Baron. What have the family members told you about what this painting means to them all of these decades later? Because they have been searching all of that time. They were looking for this painting. Well, that's that's correct. Uh, the, the, the family has been looking for this painting. The surviving members as well, actually Lily and, and her children, uh, and grandchildren came to the United States in the 1950s. They've been searching for the painting ever since. Uh, the original plaintiff in this case, Claude Casirer, carried photographs of the painting with him whenever, wherever he went, and he showed them to people and asked them to let him know if they knew anything about the painting. Eventually, in late 1999, a friend of his said she found it uh, at the museum. The painting is hugely important to the family, both as part of their legacy and uh, as part of the Jewish heritage uh, in from, from pre-Nazi Europe. It is also extraordinarily important to David Kassir, the, the present plaintiff, because he was told by his father that he was to use this painting to, to sell it in order to raise money that would be used to set up a foundation that would support and assist not only Jewish people, but people of all faiths and backgrounds, so that they would never have to face the kind of horrible situation that uh, that the family did uh, back in Germany. 
The appeals court in Pasadena, as you well know, deferred to, to Spanish law about uninterrupted possession in a situation like this. Why do you think they took that route? What does that signal to you? The fact that, that, that this is now the rule in Spain, that the Spanish government has advocated and the court has now ruled that if you hold a piece of stolen property for only three years, that you become the full lawful owner of that property. Uh, that is an extraordinarily dangerous rule, and it has very much implications for the present day. We know Russia has looted from Ukraine thousands of artworks and religious icons and other beautiful cultural uh, artifacts. It, it is virtually certain that as we speak today, some of those Ukrainian artworks are being traded and sold in Western Europe by unscrupulous dealers and unscrupulous collectors. According to Spain's position in this case, if someone in Spain buys a looted Ukrainian icon without knowing for certain that it was stolen by the Russians, and that's what the Court of Appeals said the law is, you got to know for certain that it was stolen. And if you don't, then within only three years after the purchase, you acquire title that is absolute and unchallengeable. Judge Consuelo Callahan said in a separate opinion, it's been reported, that she hoped the museum would, would return this painting voluntarily. Do you have hope of that happening? Uh, I do, because I, I, I'm, I'm an optimist and I believe in the good faith of people, and I certainly believe in the good faith of the people of Spain. I don't know why Spain has for 20 years uh, fought the return of this painting with, you know, millions of dollars of expenses and every legal theory they can think of. They know for a fact, everyone knows, that this painting belonged to the Kassirs, that it was stolen by the Nazis, and that by international consensus and treaties, that looted property in war must be returned to the rightful owners. What is the family, the Kassir family, planning to do next? We are planning to pursue additional remedies in the appeals court. We're going to ask the court to reconsider its decision and some errors we believe it made. And if that is unsuccessful, we will ask the full court. Uh, this was made by what's called a panel of three judges, this decision. The full court uh, is many more judges than that. And if we are successful, then 11 judges will weigh in with their own ruling as to whether this was correct or not. David, thank you. Thanks very much for your interest. That was David Barrett. He's one of the lawyers for the Kassirer family. We reached him in New York City. We also reached out to the Thyssen Bornemitsa Museum in Madrid, but we didn't hear back before airtime. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Nika Oksal. And I'm Talia Schlanger. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.